Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and today on Cheftimony, we're talking running, we're talking mountain climbing, we're talking flagships in the Mediterranean, and we're talking about fudge. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Cheftimony. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. You might have gathered from those introductory remarks that today's episode is a little bit different. And it is. I'll get to it in just a minute. First, just a little bit of housekeeping. My interview with the gambling enthusiast, Vegas enthusiast, cooking enthusiast, podcaster, Julian, is getting closer and closer. We haven't done the interview yet, but we're getting really close to finalizing a time. I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you. I will likely pair that talk with my interview with Chris, who you heard from briefly last week. Stay tuned for all of that, because I know we are all keen for some more Vegas-themed shows. On the personal front, things are getting really busy in advance of the wedding, which is now just a few weeks away. It may put a slight dent in the old recording schedule, but I'll update you in the coming weeks on any short delay that might be happening in the publishing schedule. It won't be a long delay. Oh, and after the wedding, we are heading out on a short honeymoon within our beautiful home province of British Columbia, and although this may not be the top-rated, top-recommended way to start a marriage, I'm actually going to stage in a restaurant on our honeymoon. This is a place I've wanted to go to for years, and I can't wait to join the team there. I'm going to keep the details a bit vague for now, but I'll bring you lots of detail from that experience soon, including, fingers crossed, a talk with the team behind the restaurant. Okay, on to today's show. My guest today is Aaron Hale, and he's a chef, which on its own makes him a great guest for Chef Timoni. But Aaron's story is so much more than cooking. Rather than give away too many details in this introduction, I'm going to head to the interview in just a minute and let Aaron tell you his story himself. As a very quick overview, Aaron served in the U.S. military, both Navy and Army, for 14 years, and he's got some great stories of cooking on a U.S. flagship in the Mediterranean. Now, Aaron and his wife Michaela operate a successful fudge company called EOD Fudge in Florida. But between the flagship and the fudge company, there is a whole lot to tell. It's a story of overcoming some incredible challenges. In doing that, Aaron made use of his years and years of experience in the military. One term or one phrase that's thrown around a lot in the military is adapt and overcome. And usually that's when a sergeant is telling a private that, you know, he can't go home yet. But uh, it's true. You know, we... We have, there's a, there's a mission, is that we have a duty to complete the mission, and failure is not an option. And overcome, Aaron has. You're going to hear him tell you about the changing meaning of the letters EOD in his life. It was such a pleasure to speak with this chef. I'm really glad we've connected. So let's go now. Here's my talk with Navy and Army veteran, Chef Aaron Hale. Well, listen, Aaron, thank you very much for being on the show. I'm delighted to be in touch. Thanks very much for being on Cheftimony. Well, I'm glad uh, glad to be here. Thank you for the invite, and uh, I really love your show. I recently caught the uh, Camping Chef episode, and it was fantastic. I loved it. <laughs> Terrific. Yeah, that was talking to Bart was a whole lot of fun. Was just I can great. definitely relate, uh, having been uh, on board a, a you know, Navy ship, U.S. Navy ship uh, in a really tiny galley out in the big blue sea. So yeah, you know, absolutely. Definitely related. Yeah. 
And I'm, I'm going to come back to that because I've got a bit of uh, cooking at sea experience too. So I want us to compare notes. But let's start at the, let's start with the letters EOD. And these days, EOD for you means Extraordinary Delights, which is a fudge company, as I understand it, that you and your wife, Michaela, operate. But, and, and I want to get into that a little later too and talk about, uh, of course, the fudge you're making, the different flavors, the process behind it. But, but I know that EOD is not the only, uh, sorry, that Extraordinary Delights is not the only words that go with EOD. So can you start us there? Tell the listeners about the other words that EOD represent in your life. What, like everyone's drunk? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, hey, I've seen those too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, well, I'm uh, a 14-year veteran of both the Navy and the Army. While I started off as a cook in the Navy, I deployed a couple times. I, uh, you know, once the war was in full swing, I felt a, a calling to do something a little more direct, and I switched from the army or from the navy to army EOD, which is explosive ordnance disposal, and that's the military's version of the bomb squad. I deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and though I was injured in 2011. Extraordinary Delights or EODFudge.com was uh, just a tip of the cap to, you know, nod to my previous career. Okay. So that was, that was 2011 and that was in, uh, I think, I think it was in Afghanistan that you were injured in a, I guess it was a bomb explosion, right? This is such a new world to me. That's correct. Then take us from there to, to the creation of EOD Fudge. How did, uh, how did that look? Cooking has been a huge part of my life from the time I could reach over the counter. Uh, I was making lunches, you know, school lunches for you know, myself. And I think it maybe starting in third grade, I was making lunch for myself, my kid brother and sister, uh, and, and grew up starting from Chuck E. Cheese and McDonald's and working through just about every fan- franchise restaurant in town through high school and college time to joining the Navy as a, as a chef and even you know, being stationed, uh, assigned to the commander of the U S sixth fleet in Gaeta, Italy. Once the, both wars were in full swing, I decided to, to, to go save lives. I like to joke that I, uh, once I got my first uh, confirmed kill with an egg roll, I decided to save lives instead. You know, I I deployed once to Afghanistan while I was still in the Navy as a cook. Right after cooking for the Admiral, I was all of a sudden cooking for six and seven hundred NATO soldiers and airmen, Marines and and sailors. And uh, it just so happens when I was stationed in Italy, I learned Italian. I learned uh, Italian cuisine. I loved it all. In Afghanistan, I actually got to serve right alongside some Italian Special Forces soldiers. So I got to speak Italian in Afghanistan. While I was there, I met some EOD technicians, got to learn what their job was all about. And soon enough, I was really hooked. It was the the, the brotherhood, the camaraderie, the technical aspect of the job, and the fact that I would be saving lives was was just too much to say no to. So once I joined uh, the army, I was trained up and I went to Iraq once and then came back to Afghanistan in 2011. It was about eight months into a 12 year or 12 month rotation. I'd just gotten back to the battlefield after a two week R&R 
back home where I was able to see my eight-year-old son turn one, got to share Thanksgiving with my family. And you know, the holidays, of course, it's a time to, to feast and share time with, with family. And it was a wonderful last page in the photo album before returning to Afghanistan. And I still had the luggage in the back of the truck. And we were heading from the airbase in, in uh, Kandahar to our, our command outpost when along the way there was an IED that uh, had to be rendered safe. So we, we jumped out and we we sent the robot out first. And it did what it could, but I had to go collect evidence and make sure the, the, the hazardous materials were, were taken off the battlefield. And as I was approaching, there was a, a secondary device about 20 or 30 meters from the original, which blasted, it detonated, and, and took my eyesight. It also cracked my skull in a few places, and I was leaking spinal fluid right out of my nose. Within 48 hours, I was back home in the United States, this time in Walter Reed, and trying to figure out how I was going to be you know, a father, a soldier. I was going to live my life now as a blind person. I started uh, doing whatever I could to stay off the couch and feel sorry for myself, but you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult, traumatic, it's a, it's a, it's a struggle. So I started running, started running marathons, even qualified for Boston as whitewater kayaking and uh, mountain climbing. I found like-minded people, other blind people who, you know, gone, you know, gone the way I, you know, have already blazed the trail uh, ahead of me. And I was, I was speaking, uh, I was speaking to crowds and, and and veterans and other people just to share my story and help others. When about three and a half, almost four years after the original IED, you know, the, the other the original injury, that crack in my skull posed another problem. I contracted bacterial meningitis, and I was right back in the hospital. This time. It stole my my hearing, what was left of it after the blast, and even took my vestibular balance, the inner ear uh, balance. Yeah. So now I'm completely deaf, completely blind. I can't even walk without crutches. And uh, now you know those those same demons, the why me's, the what ifs, tried to crawl back in my my brain, and I needed to figure out what to do. All the tools and tricks that I had. To, to learn how to be uh, a blind person, almost everything was audio-based. Of course, um, yeah. I was, I was a voracious reader before I went blind, and I was killing the uh, audio books afterwards. Now I couldn't hear them. I can't hear music. I couldn't use the, my talking phone or my computer. So just so happens that it was the holidays were coming up. Thanksgiving was coming soon. For six months... I'd been very unhappy, but I was, my, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, uh, was determined not to let me feel sorry for myself and I wasn't, I was going to do it either. She is just an amazing woman. For that time, she was writing every letter of every word into the palm of my hand to communicate with me because the the end of my, my, my world ended at the ends of my fingertips. 
It was a very isolating, very terrible uh, place to be. So it was. It wasn't. It was six months. I had finally gotten you know over the the meningitis, and I was getting surgeries for the cochlear implants, so I could possibly hear a little bit better again. But it took a lot of time to both get it turned on to get the surgeries done and and have and then learn how to hear in an entirely new way. In the meantime. With the holidays coming, we invited friends and family, and I was going to put on a feast. <laughs> I started weeks in advance. <laughs> I was making all these desserts. I made one of my favorite Italian you know, uh, ricotta cheesecakes. I was I was making a lot of the you know, what we love down in the south here, southern treats, pecans and caramels. And I was making fudge, and I was after one batch, I'd make another, and I was throwing all sorts of different ingredients in here. I was tweaking the every recipe i was throwing booze in there whatever i could find it was going to be great <laughs> love it Michaela, my wife noticed uh, something she hadn't seen in six months it was a smile on my face right but she also noticed that i was making far more fudge than any one family could <laughs> consume yeah. at, so at a certain was, point it becomes dangerous <laughs> so she was sneaking it out the front door. I say sneaking like you got to be real stealthy around a blind deaf guy. <laughs> uh, she was giving it away. And people were coming back to us and saying, can, can ask him, can, can we buy more of this from you? And the capitalist in me said, why, of course you may. <laughs> I'd be, you may buy and I'd be delighted to sell. Of course, right. So uh, that's kind of where... Extraordinary Delights was born. Soon we were entrepreneurs and we were making fudge all day long. We got to the point where we had to buy a shrink wrap machine and put it in our garage. And then, of course, the volume got to the point where the demand got to the point where we had to, to move out of the house and find a commercial kitchen. That's that's how we got our start. Wow. Well, And when, when did you move into the commercial premises, Aaron? That was uh, uh, 2015. Okay. Yeah, so you've been in there a few years now. Can you take me back a little bit to, uh, because as, as I mentioned in uh, at one of my recent emails to you when we were writing back and forth, uh, we share passions both for cooking but also for running. I've run a few marathons as well. I haven't come close to quali- qualifying for Boston, <laughs> i got to tell you. But was that something that you came to after your injuries? I'm, I'm guessing that in the Navy and the Army, fitness would always have been a part of your life, but it sounds like it really took off after the injury. Well, yes, it's, uh, fitness is definitely uh, a huge aspect of, of military life. Although when I was a chef in the Navy, we, would ha- we were required to take two fis- fit, uh, fitness tests a year, uh, and the running portion was a mile and a half. So for the cooks, we called it the three-mile-a-year club. <laughs> right. But when I joined the Army, it was a completely different mindset. I had to be fit because we were going to be in the desert. I was going to be wearing a 90-pound bomb suit, and I needed to perform. And I truly believe that battles are won between 6.30 and 9 a.m. And that's when we uh, we did our PT, and I would I would push myself, I'd push my team, and a lot of that was running. So it was just natural. In fact, uh, the running after going blind was almost a uh, side effect or you know, just a cause, an effect of the mountain climbing. 
Okay. When I was still re- was still recovering, I sought out. I was I was googling blind plus whatever blind plus outdoors blind plus doing things. Right. I wanted to make sure that I could still do you know be be active, and I came across these articles about a blind man, Eric Weinmeier, who was the is the only blind person to have climbed Mount Everest. And I thought, if he can climb Mount Everest, I can get out of this house and I can go climb a mountain. I sought him out and I climbed a mountain with him. With? I joined an all-veteran, uh, all-wounded veteran team and we climbed an 18,000-foot mountain in the Peruvian Andes. But to get ready for that, of course, it's really difficult to find a decent mountain in Florida. I, I began running every day uh, and extending my distances all the time and I would load a heavy bag, uh, a backpack full of whatever gear I could. And I'd start climbing some of the big condominium apartment buildings in the area. I would just uh, go up and down the stairs all day long. And that's how I got ready for the, the mountains. Wow. And of course, while I was doing that, I regained this, you know, refound my love for running. And I started joining uh, marathons. I'd actually I'd registered for four marathons in four months before having run my first. I like that attitude. Do you find let's let's actually talk about that for a second mindset. I think that's something that's important to you. And the quote you gave just a few minutes ago, battles are won or lost between 630 and, and 9am. Tell us a bit more about that. And was it in part at least training that you had received in the military, do you think that brought you through this period when you were taking up running, looking for challenges, making sure that you weren't staying on the couch? I'm guessing it was in part skills that you picked up in the military, but it sounds like mindset to you is something that is critical as well. One term or one phrase that's thrown around a lot in the military is adapt and overcome. And usually that's when a sergeant is telling a private that, you know, he can't go home yet. But uh, it's true. You know, we we have there's a there's a mission. Is that we have a duty to complete the mission, and failure is not an option. So I I love to use an analogy about my you know, previous job as an EOD technician, where in the army uh, an EOD team is one team leader and, and uh, two other EOD technicians, a three person team, and each one of these teams is given nearly a complete shipping container of tools from bomb suits to hazmat and chemical, biological, anything you can think of that we might need to reduce an explosive hazard. And we do everything from bullets and fireworks to nuclear weapons. So we need a lot of tools. But then we deploy to areas like Iraq and we've got our armored trucks that we have to roll, uh, you know, go on convoy with. Now we've got to take what necessary tools we think we're going to have uh, use out of our shipping container, pack the truck as much as we can with, uh, you know, with every necessary tool, but we have to leave some behind. And then in remote locations in Afghanistan, we were, we were on foot. We were in a, a dismounted patrol and all we had were the rucksacks on our backs and what we could carry. So now we've reduced our, our toolkit greatly. We, we often did the same job with uh, some C, C4, uh, a hook and line, just some rope and a carabiner. 
and and scraps and whatever we could find around. Look at that, you know, what tools we have in our kit. And even we don't cry about the tools we left behind or we don't have, we can't bring with us. We make do with what we've got and we move on. We adapt and overcome. And I just, I took that same mentality when I lost my eyesight. And again, when I lost my hearing, my balance, and I said, okay, here are the tools I still have. There can't be, there really can't be anything to be you know, done about the eyesight and the hearing. And I've got to adapt and overcome and I've got to move on. I've got a duty to my family. I've got a duty, even though I'm now retired, I still feel a duty to uphold the values, the, the, the standards of the, the military way of life. And I got up and I, I carried on. Wow. And did you ever, both in terms of fitness and in terms of building this business? I've got to say, it's a, it's a story unlike any I've heard before, Aaron. So it's, I'll just pause to say it really is a pleasure to talk to you about it and to just to learn others' experiences. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm inspired by what you have done already, what you have achieved. And since this is a, a cooking-related show, I've got to take it back to there because I'm endlessly curious about how you adapted to... And you can tell I'm struggling a bit with this question because given what you've just said, returning to cooking seems a bit trivial in its way, but it's something that you and I both share, and I really want your thoughts on it. So tell me now about the Navy cooking experience, what those galleys were like, who you were cooking for. And I know you spent a lot of time in Italy, so I want to hear about some pasta recipes too. Oh, I loved being in Italy. I loved uh, having the opportunity to travel the Mediterranean, both while serving for the Admiral aboard the ship and on my free time, my liberty time and leave time. I had, I, I used every opportunity to travel and and you know just fill my fill my world with some more culture and, and of course cuisine. I was stationed aboard. I was I was I was stationed in Italy for four years, and a portion of that was aboard the USS LaSalle, the the uh, flagship for the Sixth Fleet. And the Sixth Fleet, uh, US Sixth Fleet, covers the Mediterranean. And then the uh, the west uh, west coast of Africa. Most of the time, you know, the flagship doesn't do those six month carrier cruises that are away from home port for you know the entire time. The admiral liked to leave you know, you know the Bay of Gaeta for about three or four weeks at max. We would go to a foreign port in the Mediterranean. Maybe we do two or three run up the flag, have it a reception on, 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 on the, the flight deck, and then head back to Italy. And it was fantastic. I got to uh, visit uh, Greece, Croatia, Slovenia, Spain, France, Malta, all over the place. And it was amazing. And I got to enjoy such a rich culture and, and, and the foods and the experiences there. And I'd love to infuse my, my, my food with all the different influences. When I had uh, some leave time and I got to take a vacation, which, which is kind of funny because, you know, on board the, uh, the flagship, when it was in port, it was normal business hours. So I would go in, cook a breakfast and a lunch for the Admiral, but 
he would be gone by four o'clock and he would not, nobody on that ship wanted to, when they were stationed in Italy, nobody wanted to stay on board and eat ship's food, even if it was my food. So we never made dinner in port. I was done by two, two in the afternoon. I hung up my uniform and I became an Italian for the rest of the day, even though, of course, it's riposo and everybody's asleep or something. Yeah, I had a, a, a great schedule when I was in port. When I had some vacation time, I'd you know, we'd take a trip to France or Germany, and I got to experience Oktoberfest, and it's great because it's not just about the food, but it's the experience that comes with it. How the people dine in different countries and different cultures. You know, in Italy, the food is something to do while you're enjoying the dinner. Ah, if that if that it, makes sense, it does. Yeah. It does. Yeah, and this is this is a concept I've explored a bit on the show, which is really that whatever you're interested in, and you and I and other guests on Chef Demoni definitely share an interest in food, and it's great, and we can talk forever about the endless details of food prep and ingredients and that kind of thing, but. At, but at the end of the day, really what it's about, I think, is human connection, right? Bringing people together over that food. Absolutely. You know, this is maybe a side note, but while I was an EOD technician, I was deployed to Afghanistan. Even there, you know, Afghanistan is the crossroads of the world. You know, the Spice Road, not far from where I was stationed, was the ruins of Alexander's Bazaar. Wow. And the food there, the Afghans, you know, the, the fire roasted goats and lamb. And oh my gosh, it was fantastic. We would, when I was uh, cooking uh, with the Italians in Afghanistan, we would have one of the local national uh, Afghan guys run out to a local baker and come back with 60 or 70 loaves of naan, the flatbread there. And we would make pizzas for the for the base amazing when my free time when i was not defusing bombs i actually made a uh, mud brick you know, sun-dried mud brick pizza oven out behind my my team tent and uh i was making i i i emailed i think it was king arthur flour and they sent out bags of flour, pizza dough mix, spices, even a stone and a you know one of those big flat pizza peels. And I was making fresh pizza, a wood fired pizza, in the middle of the desert in Afghanistan outside my tent. I love it. That's incredible. It's, it's we're doing some renovations at our house here in, in Gibson's on the Sunshine Coast in British Columbia. And the one thing we don't have yet, and it's the one thing I really want, is a wood fired pizza oven in the backyard. So I, I love your idea of just building your own. <laughs> oh, yeah. I keep threatening my wife with putting one of them in, in my backyard, but I'm not making a mud brick one. But yeah, uh, I absolutely loved it. The guys were. We're, we're, you know, the guys are eating MREs and chow from the, the, the chow hall, though has come a long way since Vietnam and Korea and World War II. Uh, sometimes it leaves something to be desired. And of course, the soldier you know, can't, uh, can't complain. It's what, what we've got. But when I came into the uh, HQ building, an HQ tent, uh, with a steaming hot loaf of ciabatta bread 
<laughs> Where did you get that? Ah, don't worry about it. <laughs> there you go. And, and yeah, it's it's a huge morale boost. I enjoy doing it, and it's part of the reason I love cooking is that I get to. I can, it's 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 art that you can you can eat, but it in, it does something to to the warm the the soul and and warm the heart. And I love giving that away. Absolutely. It's, yeah, I was going to ask you this, this question a little bit later, but I'll, I'll do it now just because your comment leads me to think of it. I find cooking almost a, um, at times, almost a meditative process. Now, at other times, it's super chaotic and you've got deadlines to meet and a bunch of hungry people. But when I'm doing things like uh, maintaining my sourdough starter, doing a sourdough bake uh, every day on the weekend, which is as much as I can do it these days, just getting into routine, working with a dough, making fresh pasta... I find that so meditative and it brings me a lot of peace. I wonder, has it been important to your recovery? I'm guessing it has uh, after your injury. Is there something therapeutic for you about cooking? Absolutely. In fact, uh, that's, that's exactly right. While I was, you know, that, that, that dark time right after the, the meningitis, it was, it was an extremely difficult time for me. And, and yes, uh, I, I went back to cooking as therapy it along with the the support of my my loving family the the cooking uh, helped me from going to that dark place and uh, it became not just a passionate hobby but truly therapeutic yes and now it is you know, we all we all need our our personal times our unwind times and while yes i you know, we we run a business that is a kitchen now that it's out of the the house and and I'm not actually I, what I'm doing is is the research and development and I'm also you know still the uh, primary cook in the family and that is my time to unwind from the day's grind and and and, and it's time to really it's almost it's you you don't have to think uh, anymore, so it's, it's time for the brain to to slow down, and, and, uh, and it's it's I think something we need to do, whatever that that meditative as, as you say meditative time is. Yeah, everybody needs the, the to turn the brain off or to let it slow down and, and recuperate. Yeah, I I think so. I think and and isn't it interesting what what different people gravitate toward to get that, right? A lot of people, yoga is very popular. I think that meditation, running in its own way is a is a moving meditation. So I think we all reach out, we gravitate towards certain interest areas, but maybe at their root, they're all the same, which is helping us turn that brain off a bit. But then again, you know, there's, there's all sorts of relaxation, recovery, play, and that's also you know the the other side is is physical fitness, which is also not just good for the body but great for the the mind and heart. So while the cooking you know it helps me unwind, it's the 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 running and the other physical you know outdoor activities that completes that 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 wellness the well being circle. Sure. Yeah, brings the brings it full circle. T- take us back, Aaron, to the was it, it's the LaSalle, the the ship that you're on, the flagship. 
Right. He was his listener. Okay. Yeah. I'm curious about both what the galley looks like. Like, how many cooks would you have had in the galley? And you know, sort of the tools and the setup there. And then also maybe you could tell us about one or two of these um, sorry, receptions that you mentioned when you'd go into port and have people onto the flight deck. Uh, who, who was coming in for these things? Who were you cooking for apart from your fellow Navy members on the ship? The flagship is a kind of a different animal to, to other ships in, in the fleet. Whereas it's got a, a standard ship's company from a captain on down, but then it also has his boss, the fleet commander on board, and all of his staff. I and my crew cooked for the admiral and his staff, which would vary between 25 and sometimes 85, depending on if we were going into tax-free zone uh and officers would come uh temporary duty for a very important reason i'm sure <laughs> Got it. but uh, uh we yeah we, we we cooked it was the the ship itself was a converted amphibious lander so it was one of those ships used the type of ship that used in world war ii like the uh, normandy invasion where it would actually sink its rear end partially, and then out of the well decks, it would it would drop the the the, the stern, and then landing craft would come out of the well decks and and go you know send a landing party. Well, when it was converted, they they shoved a huge barge that had staterooms on on it right into the well deck, welded up the the stern, and then they converted a portion of the staterooms above into offices and a galley for my small crew. We would have four or five culinary specialists, is what the Navy calls them, in this really tiny galley where no two people could be, or no three people could be uh, working in there out of reach of the other. You got to keep your elbows tight. It was. It, 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 you had to do this economy of space thing where you didn't pull out more ingredients or mise en place all over the place. You, could, you really had to had to keep guard of what you know what space you were using because somebody right next to you was prepping something else. We made it work. It was terrific. But then when we uh, we would have a reception and the volume we would go from cooking for you know 25 to 85 to cooking for you know prepping you know a reception for 300 or more wow uh, it we turned it into more of a there was we would try to plan it out so there was a lot of uh, make ahead stuff so we could do a couple days in advance maybe freeze and then uh, we would also borrow the the ship's companies the main uh, mess hall when they were not doing meal preparation. So then we were also doing things in between the you know, mid rats or the the um, mid, midnight rations or the uh, you know the night bakers uh, time where we could we could prepare uh, prepare for uh, these receptions. Of course, uh, our our chief is a, was a Filipino man, and of course we had to do uh, many. Uh, Philip, things like uh, lumpia and uh, other treats from from his homeland, but uh, the funny thing was the the admiral 
and while I was there, I was there during a change of command. So I actually cooked for two different admirals, but they both turned out to be hamburgers and fries kind of guy. Okay. But, uh, you know, we would, we would, of course, turn everything we could into the best. We would bring the level up as much as we could. And everywhere we, every port uh, we pulled into, we would take almost, it was like a shopping party where we would go out and, and resupply, but we would f- try to find local fare that we could cook for the, for the admiral and his staff. But when we were in, uh, in home, our home port in Italy, the one thing he forbade us from doing was making Italian food. Because <laughs> there was so much of it close the, to hand? Or? Well, that's the thing. He said, and, and this is, you know, it's true. As good as we got at it, we weren't Italians. Right. <laughs> and in Gaeta, Italy, home of the Gaetano olive and the most, some of the most delicious olive oil in the world. But the, the food there, the Italian cuisine, is incredible. Why have a bunch of U.S. Navy cooks making it when he could just go go home? Sure. So um, he just for, he forbade us from making Italian food while on duty. Is there a particular? You, you mentioned a ricotta. Was it a ricotta cheesecake? What What else did you bring back from from that region in terms of of recipes that you might still use these days? Well, uh, you know, I am a candy guy, so sure. uh, I love torrone. Uh, which is the, uh, the Italian version of nougat. And uh, I've got a great recipe. Actually, I stole a recipe from Epicarius. It was uh, a, a pistachio honey torone, and it's fantastic. But beyond that, you know, there's, it's every region in Italy. Is, because it's, it's all, I'm trying to remember, uh, Italy itself is a younger nation we don't realize is a younger nation than the United States before it, it, it didn't become it's uh, one whole Italy until after the United States had unified before then it was all city States. Right. And though it was, you know, it was all the regions are very localized with their, their food. You go to Bologna for Bolognese. Yeah, you go to Parma for Parmigiano. You know, in, in Florence for uh, Florentine, right, right? And that's and it's true. You, you don't order a pizza in Florence because it doesn't come out right. Ah, interesting. Um, yeah, I think that's such an interesting point, and it's one I hadn't thought about. You're right, though. It's Italy. Italy as it exists now is relatively young compared to some other countries. That's really interesting. Yeah, and it's certainly like the regional variation is notable. One of the the unifying things there is that the the Italian uh, method for cooking is keeping it simple and keeping it fresh. Right, Let, uh, letting the you know, ingredients shine. And they, yeah, and and it's it's many of their ingredients were never even refrigerated. You know that that morning. Uh, chefs would go down to the the open air market and pick up the basil and the tomatoes that they were going to they're going to use that that evening in their their meals. They go down to the the fish market for the mussels and the clams. It is and it, that you know you absolutely can taste freshness just off the vine or just out of the sea flavor in the food, and that's probably the most important ingredient in the food right. 
is time, timeliness. Yeah, it's interesting. I spoke to a Vancouver chef, uh, Robert Belcham, who does, he has restaurants and his main one is an Italian focused one. And he said, but I'm not Italian. I've never cooked in Italy, but I really like the Italian approach to food, which is letting those ingredients be front and center. And And he made the comment, I thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. He said, when you get into France from Italy, the cooking is a little bit more about ego. And he said, that's not a bad thing. It's just a different thing, right? They manipulate ingredients a bit more in France. But in Italy, to your point, it's all about that perfect freshness. It's true. You know, you go to other places and it may be about the spice combination or cooking things until all the flavors meld together. And I believe in some 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 plates in Italy, that may be the the thing, but it's for most of most of the the time I was there, it's about getting the the, the flavors uh, paired just right and getting it cooked to just a, the amount of doneness in, is necessary, and then getting it on the right. plate. I loved uh, like one of my favorite uh, uh, pasta dishes is spaghetti carbonara mm-hmm. and it is so so simple in fact uh, you know i one of my friends who used to make it for me all the time uh said that she takes the pan off the heat before even adding the egg mm-hmm. and just drops an egg in the middle and swirls the whole thing together and that's it and that's that's how fresh and how quick they want they don't want to overcook anything including absolutely yeah well listen aaron let's get back to the fudge i want to hear a bit more about eod and and maybe we can start with some of the the flavor profiles that you're putting out um one definitely that caught my eye on your website was the american pick-me-up uh tell us about that that seemed a, a melding of of some important flavors in your country of course you just picked my favorite too and also another nod to Italy and my influences over there because it's a kind of an American knockoff of tiramisu. Oh, okay. And literally tiramisu translates to pick me up because it's got the coffee, it's got the alcohol, it's got the cocoa, it's uh it's got everything you, you need to well, brighten your day, I think. <laughs> sure. And I decided I wanted to try something that was all American and living down the South. We, like I said, we've got the Southern pecans. I use instead of Frangelico for tiramisu, I use bourbon cream. And instead of, you know, espresso, I use coffee brewed with American pride and roasted right here in the United States. And uh, it is a two-layer fudge, the top layer being white chocolate and bourbon cream with a sprinkling of pecans. And then the lower layer is a darker you know, chocolate with coffee in it. And yeah, like I said, it is one of my favorites. Beautiful. And you're selling now, can you tell us about your customer base it's i know you've got a website people will be ordering there but it seems that you're also doing some corporate work i read about boeing and and even the royal bank of canada is that right that's right we it's actually just by uh luck of networking that 
like I mentioned earlier, I do some keynote speaking, telling my story as I'm telling uh, you today. One of the ways we were able to get, you know, get the whole EOD fudge project off the ground was by introducing it around the tables at some of the events. So we were, you know, as I was hired to speak uh, uh, at an event, a gala or a conference or whatnot, we would also be uh, hired to put place treats, uh, candies around all of the tables. And it, it was fantastic because all of a sudden we've got a couple hundred new customers now uh, want to know more about what that was what was just placed in front of them. So we would we made a, a little postcard style thing with a short uh, bio, a little story about us, and we include that in you know some of the you know, you know box of fudge and place that at each of the seats. And we've had customers like uh, the American Life Insurance Council, the Royal Bank of Canada, the Boeing, and and many other organizations. And one organization feeds to the next. We're doing an event in a month for advanced auto parts in North Carolina. And I can't wait. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, it's great. Listen, Aaron, just a few more questions. I'd love to get your thoughts on balance, balance in life, I guess, but balancing it all. Because I know from experience that cooking, when you're doing it professionally, is incredibly demanding the time the time demands can be extreme and you've got a bunch of other stuff going on in your life so i i understand now you have three children your older boy and then two really infant twins uh, how do, how does that look how does that work how does your day come together how do you deal with all of those challenges first is setting your priorities it, and then it's setting the goals to match those priorities and then planning if we can set the goals and set timelines for each of these goals, and then we just schedule. And sometimes, you know, it's easier. And this, I think, is another thing I got from the military is that once you set a schedule, schedules can change or things can interfere. But then you you just shift left or right the other things and carry on. But it doesn't it doesn't throw your entire day or week or plan out of order you just you know you you still have a plan and never let any one thing you know the you know whether it's business or my own you know the you know the running or other you know plans other other things invade what is supposed to be my time or more importantly what's supposed to be family time so we still you know, it helps that we we run the business from our home office, but we still eat dinner as a family. the The most difficult time you know, thing now is that you know, infants, and especially identical twin infants, take a huge chunk out of the time. So what we have to do is we schedule you know, the, the the you know the boys, the babies are on their own schedule, and while they're napping. We already know that we need to get get to work, and we need to get things out of the way. So it is. Well, it's a full schedule. It's not difficult if you work it right. And would you have any advice to people based on your experiences? And I'm thinking about people coming up and looking at 
culinary arts as a career choice. And what, one of the, I'll give you a little context for the question. One of the things I've heard from a lot of chefs and, and really a lot of lawyers too, which is the other world that I know, the people who, like me, are getting a little long in the tooth, getting quite senior, there seems to be an attitude that, boy, you know, these, these kids these days, they, they don't want to work. But then I talk to younger chefs and, and they'll say, no, that's not really a fair criticism. We're just working a little smarter uh, or doing things differently. But with that sort of general background and your experiences, Aaron, do you have, would you have general advice for somebody coming up and looking at the culinary field as a career? Well, I'm a huge advocate of working smarter. <laughs> I made a uh, comment about it on social media, I think just yesterday. I, I was asking, so li- the the term life hack is a millennial version of using your head? <laughs> I think that's exactly right. Okay, got it. But it's true. If you can find a better way to do something, by all means. But it doesn't exclude hard work. People like to say, work smarter, not harder. I like to say, work smarter and harder. Right. And the culinary culinary arts is hard work. It, there's there, First, it's you know, depending on where you are or what you're doing. If it's a professional kitchen, if you're... No matter, really, no matter what, it's long hours. It's a lot of time on your feet, and and probably hot, <laughs> hot and, <laughs> and sharp. Um, but it, no matter where you are, uh, usually you have to pay your dues just to get to a certain status where you can finally, you know, kick your feet up for five minutes before getting back to work. And and it's true. Yes, you know, definitely work harder, but and, and work smarter. But it's it's the two you know pillars of any job work ethic. Listen, Aaron, I, I want to say just before my my final question, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a fascinating interview, and as I say, I, I struggled a bit with questions in the middle of it, just because, frankly, I find your your story uh, inspiring and a little overwhelming. So, thank you for sharing it. It's uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you, Graham. I really appreciate the invite, and I enjoyed this conversation. It was, it was terrific. Wonderful. And last question, where is the best place or places for my listeners to find you, to follow you, and, and to track down your fudge? Well, of course, uh, you can find us on social media at EOD Confections, and that's uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And, of course, you can read more about our story and buy fudge at eodfudge.com terrific i'm gonna check it out and i recommend my listeners do too thanks aaron for joining me on the show it really was a pleasure to speak with you and i do hope that you and michaela make it up to vancouver sometime soon if you do please look me up it would be fantastic to connect in person Okay, that is all for today. Remember, you can avoid the hassle of ever having to download the podcast again just by subscribing to Cheftimony, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or on any of the other platforms. And as always, I love to hear from you. So if you have a comment or a question for the show, a topic suggestion, or if there's a chef you'd like to hear from, or even a lawyer who has an interesting connection to the food world, just send me a message. You can do that on Instagram or Facebook or directly by email to graham at cheftimony.com. Okay, thanks for joining me for today's show. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you again in a week right here on Cheftimony.